Okay, I'm going to read the text one more time. But before I do that, our t our, the lesson of our, our uh, sermon today, our lesson, is going to be heavenly groanings and living for Christ. And I have a question for you before we do that. Have you ever had misplaced priorities? Again, probably a silly question we all have. I have my own. I'm going to share one here in a little bit, but I want to share you a couple before I share mine because I think it's going to make mine sound better, um, <laughs> not as bad. I found a couple doozies online, misplaced priorities, and I just want to read you these stories. These are, there's a little humor, but it's mostly just sad, but listen to this. The first one says, when New Jersey teacher Mary Murphy got a call telling her that her house was on fire, she promptly dropped everything and rushed to the scene. She wasn't scared for anyone's life because she knew that her husband and her mother, who had been staying with them, were both safely outside the blaze. Instead, Murphy was determined to save her most prized possession, and not even a raging inferno was going to stand in her way. What was so important that Murphy would literally risk burning to death to salvage? Baseball tickets. More specifically, her season tickets to the Phillies. <laughs> Anyone else? Heroically ignoring every single one of her other possessions, including a certificate of fire insurance, which may have at least been worth a slight detour for, Murphy reached her baseball tickets and made it out in time to see everything else that she owned swallowed by remorseless fire. Although Murphy and her husband were forced to live in a motel for some time after the blaze, they were able to make every Phillies home game that season. <laughs> so, interesting. I think the story kind of goes on. The Phillies kind of found out about the story and kind of gave her a bunch of merchandise, and came up to her and said, you didn't need to do that. We would have reprinted your tickets. <laughs> so she runs into a burning building to save her precious Phillies tickets. Sports is great, but that's a misplaced priority. Let's just be honest. The next one I'm going to read here is even worse, uh, unfortunately. It says, in 2006, Stanford resident, I'm going to try the name here, Gouda Sazen Silverstein, made the incredible decision to leave her two-year-old son in the car on a hot summer day while she did some shopping. When she returned, she was horrified to discover that she had locked herself out of the car and couldn't get in. The temperature was a sizzling 88 degrees, and her child was at a serious risk of heat stroke. When the firefighters arrived, they informed Silverstein that in order to get her son out quickly, they were going to have to break one of the windows of her car. Silverstein, understanding the urgency and severity of the situation, heroically said no. Silverstein didn't want the firefighters to damage her 1999 Audi. But she understood that her son needed to get out of the car, so she came up with a compromise. She would drive over a mile to get to her home and get her spare set of keys. Keep in mind that her son had been in that hot car for 15 to 20 minutes at this point. After she borrowed a car to drive home, the firefighters ignored her wishes and broke the window anyways. The two-year-old boy was fine. He was unresponsive initially, but thankfully recovered fully. When Silverstein returned, she was placed under arrest for reckless endangerment and risk of injury to a minor. Misplaced priority. Big time, right? Um, shopping, her car, over her two-year-old son. Okay, like I said, I want these to make mine sound a little bit better, but I'm going to share, I'm going to be very vulnerable with you this morning and share one of my misplaced priorities. Okay. I was uh, early 20s at this point, and I was working, it was a summer job, but I was working full-time at this summer job. 
And it was about 15, 20 minutes away from where we lived. So I had to, you know, had to commute a little bit in the morning. And I think this job started at 8 o'clock in the morning promptly. Had to be there early. I am by nature a night owl. Anyone else? Night owl? Like to stay up late? Okay, there's a couple. So I also was very into sports. I like sports now, but I was way more into it when I was younger 20s. And I wanted to watch the late NBA game. It started at 10.30. I think it was going to end around 1, but it went into overtime. I think it didn't end until around 2 a.m. I have to be at work at 8 a.m. Okay, so um, my alarm goes off as it normally did. Still set my alarm, and I, I either must have not heard it or shut it off. And I woke up at like 7.46 a.m. Again, big deal, right? So you're going to be a little late. Well, no, I wasn't going to be a little late. <laughs> I didn't want to go through the hassle of being written up or having some conversation with my boss. So... I was still going to make work on time. I wasn't going to let my decision have any consequences. So I decided to skip my morning routine, throw clothes on, head right out the door, right out the, uh, got in my car, and I drove to work. But I told you my commute was about 15 to 20 minutes, and I had about 11 to get to work. I made it. I'm, I'm sad to say I made it because I drove like a maniac <laughs> that morning. I was cutting people off. I was going 20, 30 miles over the speed limit to get to work because I didn't want to face any consequences for my decision-making that night before. And unfortunately, nobody was hurt in the story, myself included. But I endangered several because, again, I wanted to get to work on time. I'm, I'm setting the stage here. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to reread the text. But we're going to look at today a little bit of priorities and keep our mind on where Christ wants our mind. So, Go back with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10 again, and I'm going to look at verses, I'm going to read also verses 14 and 15 uh, included in this. So it says, For we know that if our tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Bump down to verse 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Priorities. I'm going to walk us through this passage a little bit, okay? And we'll, we'll take a couple illustrations along with us. But I want to start the way Paul starts. And I think the way Paul starts here is by giving us confidence. He wants to give his readers, even this church in Corinthians, which was a little messed up, they had some misplaced priorities and needed some help. Paul is still seeking to give them confidence on the other side. And I think he's doing that for us as well as we read this today. But he's also setting our perspective somewhere else, somewhere beyond the earth. 
okay? And how he's going to do that is he's going to illustrate this for us. And the way he does this is, is by a contrast. He says in verse, verse 1, we know that if our tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Anyone ever gone camping? Anyone ever used a tent to go camping? Okay. I'm not going to teach you anything about tents this morning. I think you all know what a tent is, right? Uh, even if you haven't gone camping, you understand what Paul is saying here between a tent and a building. Okay, one is a temporary residence that you stay in for a weekend or two throughout the year because you want to go camping. It's not meant for permanent dwelling. A building, on the other hand, is meant for permanent dwelling. It's, that's what you live in, hopefully. You live in a home. You live in a house. And you can stay there permanently, unlike a tent. And Paul is going to show us the difference between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. And the way he describes our earthly bodies is like a tent. Now, this is in our soul he's talking about, okay? Our soul lives on. He's talking about our bodies. Our earthly tent, or excuse me, our earthly body is like a tent. And I thought of how so. Look at your sheet. It's right on there. Tents are temporary. Our bodies are temporary, correct? We have them for a time, and then they're gone. They're temporary. They're fragile. Tents are fragile. I'm learning this as I get older. <laughs> the body is fragile. Uh, when I was young, 20-something, I seemed invincible. You know, I never got sick. And now it's like, wow, interesting. A lot of things hurt. Um, and I know that's just starting, unfortunately. Um, but our, our bodies are fragile. They're also vulnerable and open to destruction. People, people can hurt us. That's just honest. People can hurt us. They can, we can get in a car accident. We can have all kinds of things bad happen to us. They're earthly bodies. They're tents. But here's another interesting thing, not necessarily like a tent, but about our body. We're away from the presence of the Lord, most profoundly. In our tent, we are away from home. And when you go in a tent, typically you stay away from home, right? It's not your home. Your tent is not your home. It's something you're using for a time. So is our body. Our body here on earth is something we're using for while we're here, our earthly body. But when we get to heaven, we're going to have heavenly bodies. What will they look like? I don't know. Will we look the same as we do now? I don't know. I hope, not. I hope, we, look, I hope we all look better. Whatever our dream is of how we look, I hope we look that way. But I don't know. I don't know what our bodies will look like. But our bodies are like buildings made by God. Imagine that. If God made a building, what that building would be like. Well, God is going to construct our, our bodies in heaven to live forever. So they're not going to be like our earthly bodies because our earthly bodies age and decay and get old and our heavenly bodies won't be that way. They're permanent because heaven is an everlasting dwelling place. So we need permanent bodies to live in that everlasting dwelling place. They're secure. There's no one that can hurt us. There's nothing that can destroy us. There's no vulnerabilities whatsoever. It's a building. It's like a building made by God. Okay, now we understand the, uh, the contrast here. To illustrate this even further, I want you to imagine a hypothetical situation, okay? You want to go camping, but you don't want to go full-blown camping. You want to have a taste of camping without actually going into the woods. Remember the story about the bear and the spider? No one wants to deal with that, right? So you're going to go camping, and maybe you have children, so you decide you're going to go camping in your backyard, okay? In this hypothetical situation, you're going to set up a tent 
in your backyard, have your kids and yourself and, and whoever go camping with you. Have a taste of camping, excuse me. Um, so in this situation, you're going camping. But remember, you're in your backyard. But what you didn't do in this hypothetical situation, which kind of like today, it's going to be a miserable weather night. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be windy. Very windy, in fact. Uh, so you're there in your tent, and you're having fun. You're having s'mores. You got your nightlight. You got your, uh, excuse me, your flashlight out, telling some ghost stories. Just having a good time. Planning to sleep over with your children in the tent. Have fun. But all of a sudden, the weather changes quickly, and it's pouring rain, and the wind is howling, and it's blowing your tent, and you can tell this tent's probably not going to last. Now the water's getting into the tent and making your experience quite miserable. So you decide, well, we didn't really go camping. <laughs> we don't have to stay here. In fact, you don't even have to if you go real camping. But you decide, let's, let's, let's not do this any longer. Let's gather our stuff and let's step outside the tent. And as soon as you step outside the tent, you see your house, your building. And you gather all your stuff. You walk to your house where it's warm, you can stay dry, you can have nice warm food, you can sleep in your nice warm bed. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. We know that if our earthly tent is destroyed, we have a home built by God in the heavens. So if, when, your earthly tent is destroyed, you simply go to your building. Isn't that comforting to know? It is for me. It's comforting to know that when my tent is destroyed, and it will be at some point, I walk to my building. I don't, I don't walk. But I go to my building. God has already prepared this place for me, and I, I just simply head, head over there forever. And for me, that's incredibly comforting. And I think that's what Paul has for us here at the beginning, because we need to take that with us so that we have confidence and courage on this earth. Don't you think a lot of people want that? Don't you think a lot of worldly people wish they had confidence and hope? What they have to do, unfortunately, people who don't have hope, is they have to blind themselves to the fact that they have no hope. They have to live in the now. They have to think of all the great things that earth has and that death is never coming. It's not stalking them. But we know death is coming. But for Christians, we have hope beyond the grave, right? We live with hope that we will be with God in our permanent, eternal dwelling. So I think what Paul is saying here at the, first, at the first thing, don't worry about your tent. You have a heavenly building waiting for you. You should find tremendous hope in that. Imagine if you had that tent, a normal tent, and you spent thousands of dollars securing that tent, making that tent look nice and proper. You spent as much as you did on your mortgage or your rent on that tent to use it two or three times a year. Wouldn't that be silly? That's a silly, right? But that illustration helps us understand what Paul is saying. Don't concern yourself primarily with your destroying tent. It's going away at some point. Focus upon your permanent, eternal dwelling. So I think he's, he's trying to give us confidence, and he's trying to set our perspective somewhere else. Not on the tent, but on your building. Let's go to verses 2 to 5. One more time. He says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting on our heavenly dwelling uh, we are not to be found naked, for while we are still in the tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Groan? Anyone ever groaned for anything? Typically, when you think of groaning, you think of something you don't like. Someone groans, it's like, oh, they don't like that. That's not a good experience. But here, Paul, I think the word you could also use is, is longing for or yearning for. You ever done anything like that? Yearned for or longed for something to come? I have a couple examples, okay, to help us understand this groaning type of idea. When you're a little kid, is there anything better than Christmas? Anything at all? I could tell you confidently it's not because my children think Christmas is the best thing that's been ever been invented. And as a kid, when you get close to December, you start getting very excited. Maybe even before that you do. But as it nears, you start getting incredibly excited for Christmas, especially once that Thanksgiving thing is out of the way, you know? Like, as a kid, you're very confused by Thanksgiving. You're like, do we really need an entire holiday for dry turkey? <laughs> but as soon as Thanksgiving's out of the way, you're thinking, Christmas, Christmas is here, Christmas is coming. And you begin to long for Christmas, don't you? You begin to yearn for it. If you were like me, you had one of those little countdown calendars, the advent calendars, and you open it up. Or one of those chains you rip off because you're counting down the days to when Christmas arrives. Groaning, yearning for, longing for. Children all over the world long for Christmas. Uh, another one I thought of is the end of school. <laughs> when you're a kid, you're grown for the end of school. And that probably starts as soon as school starts, unfortunately. But um, as soon as you get to the warmer months, you know, you leave summer, or you leave, excuse me, you leave winter, you're coming into spring, you set your sights on the end of school. When is this thing going to end? When can I start my summer break? It's very much the same thing. And I remember as, as a child looking forward to the June whatever, it's lasted forever, when I was going to get out of school and start my summer vacation, you know, because as an eight-year-old, you earn that vacation. Um, but I remember it being the very, very same thing. And my, and, and my classmates used to do this when it was the last day of school. Do you guys remember like putting like covers on your books? Mm -hmm. Do they do that still? Uh, little paper covers and plastic things over your books to keep them nice. You know, we, at the end of the school, we'd rip those things off. We'd throw them in the air. You know, it was like this little party we were having because school was ending. And we were going to go have fun for the entire summer. And we were groaning and longing for the end of school. I'll give you a couple more personal ones for me. Janine and I dated for three months before we got engaged. Three months. That's fast, right? We were engaged for nine. Isn't that odd? We did that backwards. Um, <laughs> dating for three, engaged for nine. Well, Janine and I started this process. We were going to get married, and we were quite confident we should. But then we had this nine-month engagement, okay? That was an eternity. It felt so long. I remember getting, you know, we, we were married in July, and it, it turned into the new year. It was going to be the year we were going to be married, but it was still so far in the distance. And so we got closer and closer, but it still seemed so far away. We got to April, we got to May, and it wasn't until July. And I remember thinking, we gotta, we got to move this forward. <laughs> this is lasting too long. You know, this is, this is a long time to wait. And I remember groaning and longing for when we would be married. We both were. Let's get married. Let's have this done with. And... Let's be married. And that was another illustration of, of mine looking forward to something. I, I craved it. I craved being married. I craved this process being over and finally reaching uh, that destination. Another silly one that I'll just share with you. Um, this probably isn't going to help my vote today, sharing this with you, um, unfortunately. I like cold weather. I'm one of those weirdos. Is there anybody else in the room likes cold? Okay, yeah, we got a couple. Nobody. Not my dad. 
I'm a weird person when it comes that way. I, I look forward to cold weather, but Janine has figured me out over the course of years. She goes, I don't actually like the cold. What I do is I hate the heat. I'm a hot weather hater is what I am, and, and I think she's right. Um, typically, you, know, you guys know how it goes, right? Um, September comes, and what are you thinking when September comes? Fall. Fall's here, right? When, when September comes, school starts, the football season begins, and things, colors start to change. Fall is here, but not according to the weather it's not. It's still 80, right? 80-something degrees. By that time in the year, I am groaning for cool weather. I want the heat over with. I want to stop using the air conditioners, and I want the cold weather here. And Janine, I'm quite, I think I'm, I, I have this weird mix in September between excited and whining, you know? Because <laughs> I'm really excited for fall to come, but it's not coming. And like the last couple of years, it hasn't happened until like November. So it's, um, I've been groaning and longing for the cold weather to come. Those are some examples of what Paul is saying here. He says, we should be groaning for the other side, longing for, craving for the other side. But you notice what he says here? He says, we're not longing for death. We're not longing to die. Longing to die is not a mark of a Christian. But longing for further life is. And that's what Paul is saying. We're not here being suicidal people just ready to kill ourselves and be... You ever go to an amusement park and go on a ride you hate and go, I want to be off this ride? I went on one at Cedar Point. It spun you all the way up in the air like this over and over and over, and I got so nauseated. I was like, get me off this ride. And sometimes you think about this with this world, right? Get me off of this ride. I'm ready to be done with this ride. But the mark of the Christian isn't just for death. It's for life. I want better, greater life. And we thankfully know that there's a place in heaven where we have that. We have greater, better life. He also says that um, we want the, this life to be swallowed up by what is immortal. And I think that's another mark of a Christian is we should want this cursed and sin-stained world to be swallowed up by the life that Christ offers. Or in my paraphrase, evangelize. Share the life-giving gospel with this dead, decaying world because you know how great it is to have that hope. You should know how great it is to have the hope of life beyond the grave. Many of the world, most of the world that we live in does not have that hope. They have to put death out of their mind. They have to not think of the scary because they don't have the hope. They have curiosity beyond the grave, but they don't know. They don't have hope. And so you and I as Christians, we should be marked by this wanting this mortal life that we live in to be swallowed up by immortality, the life that Christ offers. He also says this, um, verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Those deep groanings I talk about, they come from God. God designed us to groan for heaven. Long for heaven. When you do, that's a good trait. That's not a bad trait. You shouldn't think, oh, I need to live you know, in the now. Of course we need to live in the now. But you should be longing for the other side, and so should I. Because that's given to you by God. God knows you are in a sin-cursed, stained world that he doesn't want for you. Now, God has it for us as a part of his will, but he doesn't want this for us. He wants us to have life because we know that's why he sent his son.
not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So those groanings you have from God should give you confidence as well, because that means you're of God. You can't groan and long for heaven. You can't consider heaven to be your home if you don't have the Spirit of God within you. That makes no sense. And that's why the world doesn't have that kind of groaning. They don't have that kind of longing because they haven't tasted of that hope. And for you, I, I find this interesting that you and I long for heaven. We long for a home and we've never been there. <laughs> I've never been there. I don't know what heaven is like and neither do you. And yet I long to be there. I long to go home. The guys, that's, that's created by God. God gave us that groaning, that longing for. And the spirit which draws our, our soul to greater nearness to the Lord is our guarantee. Isn't that a cool word, a guarantee? It's not like 60-40, you'll get there. If you have these type of groanings and these type of longings for Christ and for heaven, you're going there. It's a guarantee by God. If, you're, if you have that, if you have that mark as a Christian, that you want further life, you want to get off this ride, you want to go where Christ is, you want to be in heaven, it is a guarantee from God that you're headed there. And to me, again, that fills me with tremendous hope. Because I'm, I'm a guy who second guesses a lot of things. I'm a guy who doubts easily. And sometimes I doubt my own authenticity as a Christian. But if I have these longings, which I do, they should be more than I do, unfortunately, but I have these longings and these groanings, that's a guarantee from God that I will be with him one day soon. And I want you to find encouragement from that today if you have those groanings that we're talking about. And if not, we're going to get there. We're going to get to why that's so important to have these groanings. But let's keep moving on here. Just lost my notes. Excuse me. Sorry, I just closed everything. Bear with me one second. All right, we're back. Okay, the next thing he says is verses 6 to 8. Let's reread those. He says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The hope of going home one day should fill you with courage. Courage. Because it doesn't matter if and when you lose this life. It doesn't matter, according to the beginning of this text, if and when your tent is destroyed because you have a heavenly building made by God. That should fill you with courage, not just hope. Courage is different than hope. Courage is the willingness to do something risky. That's what courage is. And Paul is saying it should fill you with courage to do something risky. And you know the thing that he's talking about? Living for Christ. Living for Christ, really, truly living for Christ, is a risky endeavor. It brings danger. It brings hatred. It brings a lot more people wanting to hurt you and harm you and speak, and speak poorly of you. And that takes courage. How do you get that courage? You have to understand what's on the other side. You have to understand the, the hope and the reality of that, or you'll never have the courage. You'll always be trying to with money and workout routines. Yeah. 
and my tent will never be destroyed. Well, that's not true. And I'm not saying don't eat healthy. What I'm saying is have the hope of what's beyond this tent. And it should fill you with courage because we're here on purpose. We're here on purpose. God has designed that we are to here to be in this life to journey toward heaven. It's on purpose. God has a plan for this. He could have saved us and brought us right to heaven, right? When I was age five and I trusted in Christ, it's like, beam him up. He's done. Bring him to heaven. Well, that's not what happened. Okay, now you start the Christian race. Now you start this journey I have for you. This is on purpose, and God wants you to have courage. In fact, you must have courage. Unless you have courage to live the Christian life, you're going to give up. It's that daunting. It's that uphill. It's that scary. We all need courage to journey forward. And Paul and Christ want us to have this courage today. We'll go back to the courage thing here in a little bit. But it also, also does this. Um, the hope of one day going home with the Lord gives us this. Uh, I think what's going to happen is when we're reunited with the Lord finally and fully, it's going to be so much sweeter coming from this earth to heaven because we'll appreciate it more. And I'll go back to myself longing for cold weather. As much as I hate hot weather, I need it because it makes me appreciate the cold weather. Do you see that there? When I come finally into fall and it's October, November, and the temperatures start going down, I'm really happy. I am. I'm a very happy version of myself. Um, I'm a happy guy generally, but right around November, you're going to see a little peak uh, because the cold weather's finally coming. But I need the hot weather in order to appreciate the cold weather. And I, I think be, being on this fallen, sin-cursed world, when we get to heaven, it's going to be such a relief. It's going to be so sweet that we're going we're gonna to go, wow, this is amazing because I know what I'm coming from. He also says, while, we walk, while the world walks by sight and lives by the flesh, we don't. We walk by faith because we know the Lord and we know his promises cannot fail. I heard a, uh, a guy defending the gospel one time and he said, the guy was the questioning him going, how do you know God exists? How do you know God is real? He goes, because I know him. He goes, what if I asked you the question, how do you know your wife is real? The, question, the answer would be the very much the same. I know her. You can't tell me my wife doesn't exist. I know her. And this, the, the, the answer to the man was, you can't tell me God doesn't exist. I know him. Hopefully that is true of everybody here. Not that you know about God, but that you know God. You've experienced God. God's been with you in the valleys. God's been with you in the dark periods and the mountaintops. God's brought you through things, hasn't he? You've had presence with him. You've had closeness to him. You've had tear-filled prayers with him. You know him. And therefore, you walk by faith. Nobody can convince you God doesn't exist. You know him as well as you know anybody. In fact, you spend more time with him probably than anybody. I'm hoping you do. And so you walk by faith. You don't have to be convinced. You don't have to see with your eyes. You've seen with your soul. You've seen with your heart. And you know this. His promises cannot ever fail. For God's promises to fail means he's not God. If he is God and you know him, you know his promises cannot fail. So if he's telling us today that we have the Spirit as a guarantee, and he uses that word, it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. So don't lessen that word and go, eh, there's a chance. No, there's not a chance. If you have Christ and you have God and you have these groanings that we're talking about, it's a guarantee. You're going home one day. 
So when your tent is destroyed, big deal. You're going to your building. Have courage because of that. Courage. And that's the last thing here. Our longing to be with the Lord is our fuel to live courageously. There it is again. Our holy heavenward bound journey on this earth is a gift from us to God. Think about it that way. That we don't want to waste this precious opportunity God's given us because this is the hardest place possible to love him. Therefore, it's the sweetest gift to him. And I can prove that with the, with the Bible, um, Abraham and Isaac. He says at the end of that, uh, that, end of that situation, he says, I, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. Before that, he said, Abraham, give me your son. Give me your son. The son I promised everything through, give him to me. And Abraham said, okay, I will. And God said, now I know that you love me. This earth is a test. It's a test of our love to God. He knows he loves us. We know he loves us. If you love God on this place, you clearly love God. And therefore, we shouldn't want to waste this precious opportunity. It's precious. It's sweet. It's, it's an amazing gift we'll be able to give to God someday. There's, unfortunately, there's no earth part two. We don't get to do this again. We don't, we, when we get to the other side and go, oh, I cut a shoulda, woulda. Can we reboot that? I'll do it a lot better the second time. Well, we don't get that chance. But now we have it. We're still here. We can change, even if we're not doing it now. We can start loving the Lord here. Because it's hard. And when heaven comes, heaven won't be hard. We'll all love the Lord then. It will be easy to love him then. And now it's not. It's difficult. There's many things against us. There's many things pulling against us. But if you love him now, he will find that sweet smelling. He will find that is a precious gift to him. We'll come back to that, but I hope you want that. I hope you want to be able to hand something to the Lord because of what he gave you. When it meant to love you, it meant that he was going to have to give up his son. And he did. And now he's not asking us to give, him, give us his, our children. What he's asking for is to love me where it's hardest to do so. On this earth that I've put you on. In this tent that you're now living in. Continue to love me. Uh, lastly, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We exist for Christ. Not for myself. Not for my plans. Not for my aspirations. I exist for Christ. It says in Colossians 1, one of my favorite verses, everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Think about that. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus, including my own soul and my own body and your own soul and your own body. We exist for Christ. So Paul says, listen, whether we're at home in heaven or we're away in our tent, our purpose remains the same. Exist for Christ. Live for Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now in heaven, that's going to be a lot easier to do, isn't it? But here it's difficult. But our purpose is constant, no matter whether we're in the tent or we're in the building. We exist for Christ. 
And that's good to know. That's, that's, I need to know that because I can't get bogged down in this earth with a bunch of different things, right? It's easy to do that as well, is to get very distracted and have Christ kind of in the mix, like this big pot of stew. He's somewhere in there. He's one of the ingredients. But that's not what Paul is saying. We exist for Christ. My entire purpose is Christ. The entire reason I live is Christ. But here's even a more, more sobering fact. This is kind of how he ends this little paragraph. Just judgment day coming. Judgment day. You know what it's not meant to do with this, this part right here? It's not meant to erode the hope we just got. Okay, so don't let it do that. But it is sobering. Judgment day is supposed to be a sobering thing to know that every single person will stand before the Lord on judgment day. Every single person. And we'll all be judged according to our works. Well, how does that make any sense, right? If we're saved, why are we judged according to our works? Because you know what happens? Our works prove what we are. Now, my voice can do it too. I can tell you I'm a Christian. I can tell you my experience. But my, if my works don't line up with my, my voice and my testimony, then my testimony is a fraud. So God can judge us according to our works and go, I can tell based on that guy's lifestyle, the blood of Christ was spilled for him. Because it changed him. And he loved me. And he was set on a new course. And he had different practices and different loves. Have you guys ever seen the, um, the Lady Justice statue? You guys ever seen that? It's outside a couple courthouses. This, this Lady Justice statue, and she's, it's a statue of this woman. And she's holding these scales in her hand. One of the most interesting things about that statue is she has a blindfold on. She has a blindfold on. It's supposed to symbolize that she's not a respecter of persons. That she judges everyone the same way. At least they're supposed to. Do, do they do that? I don't know. But that's the goal. The goal is for her to, for judge, for the justice part, to uh, judge everyone the same way. No respecter of persons. And God is the one we get that from. God is not a respecter of persons on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, it's not like I step up to the judgment table and he goes, Oh, Todd, I love you so much. <laughs> you were sinful, you were wicked, you lived against my word the entire time on your earth. Doesn't matter, I love you. That's not how it works. On Judgment Day, God, in a sense, has a blindfold on and brings us next in line and goes, Let me see their works. Let me see their works. And I'll know if they're mine. I'll know if they're mine based on their works. That's sobering, isn't it? I understand it. I don't want you to think I, I don't agree with the gospel. The gospel says we're saved by grace, right? And we're going to need the cross, and we're going to need a great, great dose of forgiveness, aren't we? But if we don't have any change, if we don't have any new themes and practices and groanings, I think that's going to be scary on Judgment Day. And I think it's meant to tell us today, listen, set your perspective somewhere else, because Judgment Day is coming. Judgment Day follows death. Your tent will be destroyed, and Judgment Day will follow and I, the way I can really sum up Judgment Day in my own mind is this. God will see if we loved him. Do we want to be in heaven? Heaven is where God is. Heaven is where Christ is. Earth will prove if that's what you want to be, if that's where you want to be. And if you didn't, based on your lifestyle, based on the themes and the practices of your life, why would I bring you into the eternal dwelling where all we do is love God? If you don't love God on the earth, why would I bring you into eternity where that's all we do? And Judgment Day, although not perfection, of course, based on the blood of Christ, is going to have to prove that we love God. You guys know what it's like to have a picture on your cell phone, right? Even my old school BlackBerry can do this. You can pinch to zoom. 
on a picture, right? Um, here's another way I can illustrate Judgment Day. King David. King David is a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? That's how he's described by God. There are passages in Scripture that if you zoom into David's life, you find some nasty stuff, don't you? You find some dirt. You find some things that go, really, that guy? The guy's a man after God's own heart? Uh. You know, but we're pinching to zoom. We're, we're pinching in going, oh, David, this chapter of his life is really sinful. You have, to, you have to humor me here. But I think what God does in the last days, he zooms out. He looks at themes and practices and characteristics. Because if he zooms in on each, any one of us, he's going to find dirt, isn't he? He's going to find sin. He's going to find a reason to spill the blood of Christ. And that's why he did. But if he zooms out, hopefully he finds themes and practices and constants that prove we love him and we groan for him. And I don't know where it begins and where it ends. God's going God's to figure that out. But I think he wants for every Christian to be authentic, to long for him truly, and not just say we do and show up here at church and go, I love the Lord because I go to church. Well, do you love him every day? Do you love him every moment? Do you long for him? Do you crave him? Do you wish to be off this earth so you can be closer to him? And that's convicting for me because I'm not I'm sure I always do. But Jesus is worthy, isn't he? Even if there was no judgment day, even if there was no heaven, even if this was it, isn't Jesus worthy to have our lives because of what he did for us? Even if the only thing he did is we get to avoid the eternal destruction that awaits us, Christ would be worthy. But he gives us much more than that, doesn't he? Aren't and shouldn't his redeemed want to love and live for him, purely for him, for no really other incentive, just that I want to love Christ. And I want to take your, ver your, uh, your eyes now, and I want to point them to verses 14 and 15. That's why I wanted to include this part in the text, because look at what it says. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore we all have died. So Christ's death is the death for everyone. And he died for all, listen to this, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Is Jesus worthy of your life, of your groanings, of your love? Is he? I mean, ask that question internally. Is he worthy? Is that enough motivation for me to go forward courageously in the Christian life? Because... If I can give something sweet-smelling to Christ, I want to do it. If I can give a present to the Lord Jesus Christ that he finds acceptable, I want to do it. And that's what this earth is. You get to. You get to give the Lord a present on the last day, your life. He's not going to force you, but you get to. I'm going to run through some applications here very quickly. And these are questions more than anything. Questions that you need to answer internally. We all do. And the first one is this, is do you groan for heaven and to be in the presence of the Lord? I don't know if I can always answer that confidently. Yes, I don't. I get distracted. I get busy. I get tired. But I also get caught up by things I enjoy here on this earth. And I chase those things for a time. So do you long and groan to be in heaven where the Lord is? Do you want to go home? Or would you love it if your life could extend on this place and you could live forever on this earth? That wouldn't be a good sign. 
right? For the Christian, it's like, wait, wait, 75 years we get on this planet. I think that's the average or something like that. And for those who have been walking with the Lord for a while, that seems like my nine-month engagement. It's like, oh, that's a long time. <laughs> but for some people, it's like, no, I want to extend my life so I can live into the 90s and the 100s and even beyond. If I, if I make the right choices, I can, live on, I can live on this planet forever. For the Christian, it's like, get me out of here. I want to be with the Lord. And that's what Paul was. If you read Philippians, he's like, it's much better to be with Christ. I, I desire to be with Christ so much, but I know that he has me here for a purpose. And so the question for each of us is, do we groan for heaven and to be in the presence of the Lord? That can only be given to you by looking to the Lord. There's no other way you can get that. But the more you look to him, the more you think on him, the more you trust in him, the more you'll long to be with him. Uh, B, are you striving to invest in your earthly tent, seeking to secure it, or invest in your heavenly building? A lot could be said about that, but think about that question. Are you seeking to invest in your heavenly building or seeking to secure your earthly tent? Make it very comfortable and strong and secure. When Paul says, it's a tent. It's meant to be temporal. Even if it's very good looking and very secure, it's a tent. It's going to be destroyed. Every tent that has ever lived, meaning body, has died. Meaning yours and mine will too. Buzzkill, I know, but that's how we have to deal with it today. So... Where do you spend most of your time? This life that is a speck in comparison to eternity? Or do you invest on the other side? C, is loving the Lord your chief ambition in this life? These are tough questions. Is loving the Lord your chief ambition in this life? Does it drive your actions? Getting up today was church about loving the Lord. Is going to work about loving the Lord? Is spending time with your family about loving the Lord? I'm just as convicted as, as everyone is here today. These are incredibly convicting questions. But uh, do, you, do you insist on not wasting your life but using it for the Lord? Very much the same is do you want to love the Lord? Do you insist on not wasting this life? I wasted 20-some years probably already. From the age 5 to age 25, I professed Christianity. And I didn't love the Lord as a practice of my life. I'll never get that 20 years back but I can do it now. I can change. I can go forward. I don't want to waste this life any longer. And I know you don't either. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to stand before the Lord and go, even if you get in, even if you get to the other side and go, oh, I should have loved the Lord. I should have. Oh, why didn't I? Things, were, things seemed incredibly important here in this life. I should have loved him. And the last one, which I think ties everything together, is Jesus worthy of your courageous obedience? Is that enough? I think for Paul... That drove his every action. Paul hated Christians for a time in his life. He hated God, the real God. He did everything against Christ. And then when Paul understood who Christ was, it changed his life. And Paul realized the things that he did against the Lord were forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ. And Paul, from that point on, said this one thing. He's worthy. Jesus is worthy even if I go to jail, even if I die for the sake of Christ, Jesus is worthy. And he did go to jail. And he did die. But Jesus is worthy. And I think that's the question that ties everything together. Is he worthy of your love? 
I can't compel anybody to get up every single day and practice Christianity. But looking to Jesus can. And looking, remember, the last thing I'll end with is, remember uh, Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas said this. He said, unless I could put my hands where his wounds are, I'll never believe that he was risen from the dead. Well, Thomas got to. Jesus came into the room and said, Thomas, here you go. Put your hands where my wounds are. They're still there. I think in heaven we're going to see those wounds. Maybe even touch those wounds. And those wounds were for my sake and for your sake. And unless those wounds are there, you're not in. You don't go to heaven. You go to hell, away from the presence of the Lord. But because of Christ's wounds, you're healed. Courage, confidence, perspective, but more than anything, is Jesus worthy. I'll read this last verse one last time and we'll be done. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done. None of us could stand confidently on Judgment Day. None of us could have hope on this side of earth without the blood of Christ, without the gospel, without your grace. Father, I hope, that you all, I hope that we all understand that today and realize how worthy Jesus is for us to love him, for us to give him a gift, for us to say yes to following him because he said yes to dying for us. Encourage us forward today. Thank you for the time. Bless us today, Father, and make your will confident and clear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.